Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Motorsport Podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, something past its best? Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz, and certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used, Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. I like the way you work, Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to. I'm Ed Foster, and I'm joined by Features Editor Simon Aaron, Editor Nick Trott, and two-time BTCC champion, John Cleland, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. It's very much appreciated. My pleasure. Um, we also have Alan Hyde behind the mics and behind the cameras. Um, and breaking news, uh, some of you may remember from the past podcast with Kareem Chandhok, um, he complained about the lack of biscuits. Um, <laughs> the marketing director of Mercedes-Benz then came to the office and delivered the biscuits. So we um, have loads of biscuits uh, to eat today. So if, there's, if there are moments of silence, um, that is because we're all, all eating those. Thank um, you, Rob. Yeah, thank you, Rob, for bringing those in. There's an amazing level of service. They know how to get a plug in, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and we're quite cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that. Three bags of biscuits. That's well, it. That's there all were it more. takes. There were more. There were more. But our ads team discovered them and, and, and ate a few. Uh, now, John, uh, obviously you started your career at um, racing autocross hill climbs back in the 1970s, um, won your class in the Scottish Rally Championship in 76, and you then made the switch to circuit racing, and uh, this is in the 1980s, competed British Production Car and Thunder Saloon Championships, and then in 89 entered the British Touring Car Championship and won it first time out, won it again in 95, and also raced Bathurst 12 hours on 12 occasions. Um, it's been a very colourful life, so we're going to try and get through most of it. We've got lots of readers' questions. Um, I think before we go anywhere, uh, S. Soper. Um, <laughs> oh, really? I, that didn't take long. No, <laughs> I, just, I think what we should do is just, just get this out of the way, um, because there are loads of readers' questions about this, and it is, it's funny, isn't it, where you, you know, two-time British Touring Car Championship, but it's, it's the one that you didn't win that so many people kind of associate you with. Um, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> one of the questions is, how long did it take for, for you two to start sending Christmas cards to each other? Well, funnily enough, the, 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 late, the late Jim Bamber produced a Christmas card for me that year, 92. I said to Jim, I want something that I can send out because everybody that knew me, all friends and relatives, knew what happened. So Jim produced this lovely cartoon Christmas card for me. There was this big mound of snow and behind the snow dome was a bonfire. On the top of the bonfire was a Listerine BMW. <laughs> And there's a, there's, this, there's a lovely picture of me with my arm around Steve in true Bamber style with, a, you know, Crash Hallett and Cleland and Soper on. And I've got my arm around Steve saying, no hard feelings, Steve, come around at my barbecue. And <laughs> so that year I sent Steve the first of many Christmas cards. <laughs> I think it might have been the first and last Christmas card. Yeah, brilliant. So I just, for those listening that aren't so... Um, as I'm so sort of clear on exactly what happened in 92. Uh, it was the last race of the season. Uh, you, you were in the right position, but Soper was coming back through the pack. Um, there was some contact, then there was some more contact, and you both ended up in the gravel. I think that's sort of the most neutral way of telling the story. That's pretty true. Is, is that about how it happened? It, close, but it starts before that. The event before was Donington, 
and during that year, the BMWs had been playing around with ABS. So, I mean, they, they were really good on the, on the brakes, particularly in the wet races. And we'd been playing about with ABS <coughs> on the Vauxhalls, but could never quite get it right. And the last, the last test session that I think British Touring Cars ever did as a multiple test session was this one at Donington. It was the last time we ever went in with Formula Fords and all sorts of other stupid things. And uh, going down the craner, I, I had to avoid a Formula Ford, went on the grass. I couldn't stop it because the ABS wouldn't let me lock the thing up. I couldn't lean over to switch the thing off. And I went straight down and the wall at the bottom of the old hairpin was much closer in those days. And I hit, the head, I hit it head on. And because I'd been using a microphone in my helmet to talk to Murray Walker at a previous couple of events, as my head went forward, I broke my sternum and I broke my lower back. So I had then two races to go. One was Donington, one was Silverstone. And I was still leading the championship. Had I not been leading the championship, I'd probably, I said, enough's enough. I'm going to go and give my back half a chance. But I, I, after that crash, I ended up in some hospital in, in, uh, in Nottingham for a day or two, uh, or Derby somewhere. Um, ended up home, then back for Donington. And the little doctor was injecting me with all sorts of funny painkillers. And I had pieces of foam inside my overalls because obviously if you break your sternum, the tighter the seat belts were, the sternum opens up, so it was massively painful. So I did Donington full of painkillers. Fortunately, it was a wet race. So there wasn't quite so much strain on my body. And I think I got a I think I was third or something like that. We then get to Silverstone for the final round, and I'm still leading the championship. It was me. Harvey and uh, Will Hoy. And as long as I finished behind Will, Tim and me, and it didn't matter if we were first, second, third, 10, 11, 12, whatever. If I finished behind them like that, the championship was mine. <coughs> Which was all very well. But on the first lap, Steve went into club, I think it was, and David Leslie and he, David in the other, in one of the Vauxhalls, crashed into each other. And Steve actually thought that David Leslie had been sent out to take him out. But actually, David was in the Ray Mallet car, and I was in the Dave Cook car, and we were all a bit concerned that Mallet was getting too close to the factory cars and that maybe Dave Cook was going to lose the deal. So no, no, we were not part of the same team. We were maybe in Vauxhalls, but there was no connection. And Steve never knew any of that. What I didn't know was that Vic Lee had offered me the drive that Harvey had in late 91. And I said no, because I didn't want to go in with Steve because he was the DTM superstar. I wouldn't get the same treatment. And, and I said no to, to Vic. So he employed Tim Harvey to go in the car. So ironically, the car was mine anyway, <coughs> which puts another slant on it. Anyway, the race goes on. Steve's been biffed up the back, and there's a back bumper hanging off it. And under normal circumstances, he'd got black flagged. Right, that was it. But fortunately, the back bumper fell off for him. And he came after me, and I, I could see it coming, and I'm thinking, ah, this is going pear-shaped. Because up front, my teammate, Jeff Allen, is fighting with Andy Rouse for the, for the win. So he's not there to help me. 
He was only interested in winning the race. He wasn't interested in winning the championship. So I've got two BMWs to fight then. And Steve did a great job. He did a fabulous job of, of holding me back enough to let Tim get through. We got up to the compl under bridge into the left-hander, then the next left-hander, I had a dive through. Got the curb and it went up in two wheels. And it all looked a bit dramatic, but really it wasn't that dramatic. Well, I was only, I was only a standing car driver would say it's not true. I was standing. I was standing with Mark Hughes at Brooklands, and it, from where we were, it, it did look very dramatic. <laughs> I, can, I can promise. But, I mean, Every but, time I look at it, it looks dramatic. <laughs> I mean, so the, nice you, you, try, John. Nice try. You, you, you're two wheeling through Brooklands, and then obviously Steve's sort of torpedo act at uh, Luffield One. The, it all looked very dramatic. Well, if I had. We, we touched a little bit, so I lost a wing mirror, and it looked dramatic, it was up in two wheels, but it was never going to go over. And if I just leaned a little bit more and pushed him a wee bit more to the, to the right, he'd have got out on the gravel, and he wouldn't have been able to come back at me. And that was probably the number one mistake that I made, was not shoving him on the gravel. Mm. And as I turned into the next right-hander, I could hear this BMW coming at 8,500 revs, flat chat, and the next thing I knew, we were both in the gravel. And um, what I didn't realise is I'd spun run about. I didn't realise Steve was in the gravel beside me. So I got out the car, <coughs> looking extremely angry with the padding in my shoulders, looking like an American football player. <laughs> what happened there? And then I look over, and Steve's in the gravel as well. So I think, maybe I should go and have a wee chat with him. <laughs> so I went over... <coughs> and he's sitting inside hanging on the door handle trying to keep the door shut. <laughs> and I'm busy trying to open the door to pull his Adam's apple out. And fortunately, the marshals stopped me. And then I, of course, made the classic comment, the man's an animal, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, there was no hard feelings. <laughs> no hard Sorry. feelings except, except for the Steve, Mark Hughes did an, an, anal oh, an analysis of the, of the, the whole kind of build-up to it. And uh, Steve Suders. Steve, that, Steve, 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 I think you actually got involved on our, uh, on our side. I mean, eventually, it was all dropped, but he did sue Motorsport. What well, a piece of Mark Hughes wrote 25 years ago, yeah. It got very complicated because uh, Vauxhall stood back, BMW stood back, and said the MSA want somebody to blame for this. Um, so you guys better employ solicitors, barristers, whatever you feel fit. So we both did. And it was. Um, the commentator at Silverstone, um, that was Steve's guy. Uh, Ian Titchmarsh. Titchmarsh. Titchmarsh was his man. And I employed a solicitor who ultimately became, because he was very good, he ultimately became the Toka solicitor. And the night before, we were going down to MSA to have blame apportioned to whoever they felt was the guilty party. I phoned Steve up at home, and I said, Steve, this is silly. It doesn't get me back a championship. It's going to lose one of us our driving license, and I know who it's going to be, and it's not me. And you're in the middle of racing in Germany. It, that wouldn't be fair. So how about we go in holding hands? And we'll say it was a racing incident. And he said, you're a car dealer. He says, I don't trust you. <laughs> I said, you don't trust me. You just wiped me out. I, you want me to trust you? He said, you say it first then. I said, oh, okay, fine. So we didn't tell anybody. <coughs> and we went down there, and literally, seconds before we went in, we told the solicitors what we were going to do. 
And we went in, and I think when Percy was the sort of standards advisor, the driving standards advisor to the MSA, and we went in and said, well, it's a bit tricky. It was a bit of a racing incident. This happened and that happened and so on. And, and you could see the steam pouring out of everybody's ears around the table. And after that, you know, we, we buried the hatchet between Steve and I. I mean, Tim and I still don't talk, but I mean, that's irrelevant. But Steve and I are fine with that. I think he respects me as a driver. I certainly respect him as a driver. He was paid to do a job of work. Did he do it? Yeah, I think he did. Was he paid? You have to ask him that question. But what it did was it put touring cars on the front page of yeah. everything. Yeah. From that point, everybody knew what a touring car was. And up until that point, they were kind of rental cars that went round about at weekend. But all of a sudden, it lifted the profile and the whole thing went mad. So I, I suppose we can, we can thank that incident for that. Mm. Unfortunately, I'm not a triple champion, but I could have been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You see, what <laughs> you don't know is Steve and I, not many people know, but Steve and I, 10 years before that, shared the car at the Will Hire 24. Oh. Tony Lanfranchi, myself and Steve Soper, and the first year we did it, it was Tiffany Dell was the fourth driver in... Uh, 81, 82, it was Lam Frankie, Soper and myself that did the Will Have 24. So driving, we'd, we'd driving what? what, what it was an Opel Monza. Right, right. Um, or an Opel Com. I think it was an Opel Monza. And uh, we, we kind of knew each other for, for 10 years. He went off and drove for Walkinshaw and I, I suppose that's the regret that I didn't really get off my butt and go chasing a proper touring car drive at, at that stage of my life. But the, the, it was kind of the, it was a heyday of the British Touring Car Championship, wasn't it? As, you know, in terms of the cars that you, when you look back at the names on the grid, um, it must be quite satisfying to have been a part of, you know, the 90s and that, that era. Um, but you're back in a touring car now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't my choice. <laughs> my, my youngest son, Jamie, uh, who would be this size when I was racing it, uh, it came to me one day and he said, Dad, I found your old car on Facebook. Uh-huh. And your point is what? And he said, well, look, look, we could buy it back. Yeah, and what are we going to do with it? Well, there's a championship for it now, these hysterical things. I said, oh, right, okay. So we went down and bought it. But what he didn't realise and what the owner didn't really realise, it was my car. Everybody knew that. It was chassis number one. It was the 888 chassis zero one. So it was the first car that 888 built. Uh, what they didn't know was that it was the car that went to Australia for Warwick and Brock to drive at Bathurst when the V8s had fallen out with everybody, and this was its, the two litres went down there to do it. Brock rolled the car in qualifying, coming through the chase at the end of Conrad. Barrow rolled it, the barrel rolled it side to side, and the guys at TAFE rebuilt it overnight, and it raced the following day. And if you go inside this car I've got, above the, the rear passenger head area, you can see all the dents and bashes where the Australians pushed all the dents out. <laughs> so yeah, I have got it back and um, it's quite satisfying to get in it and just remember everything. The first race I did after buying it back was at Brands on the Grand Prix track and I'm on slicks and I hadn't been on slicks for something like 15 years because I'd driven some historic cars on these old Dunlop shaky tyres. Uh, when was I last on the Grand Prix track at Brands? And it was something like 17 years before it. And it was 15 years or so that I'd sat on a set of slicks. 
And I'm about to go and I was thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> Why have I done this? <laughs> but it was, it was great. It was really good. And it was a super touring era to drive those cars. Anybody that ever says the car was nice to drive is lying. They weren't nice to drive. They were, you had to hang on to them. And the only time you ever really were going quickly was when you were hanging on, you know? Do, do, do you have a, a, when you drove the car again, do you feel like you had a kind of a muscle memory going on where you sort of went, you got into the groove and you kind of, f you knew how to respond to the car? Did yeah. that happen? Did that trigger something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it did. I mean, uh, it was always the same over a winter. Uh, we, would, we would ship the cars up and we would go, and one year we, we shipped them up, went to Kailami. Um, it was the year with Muller, so we would package them up, we'd send off uh, truckloads of, uh, of spares and aero packages and all manner of things, we'd go down and test for a week, or we'd go to Estoril, or we'd go Harama, or somewhere like that, or we'd do tyre testing at Vallelunga and places, so you were in the car all the time, and it was just great fun, you'd spend a week throwing this thing around a track, and you never really, your muscles from the end of one season to the next, never really, you know, you, you didn't feel out of it. You didn't feel that you had to get back into it. I mean, I was never a honed athlete, as you can tell. <laughs> but you're right, getting back into that car, I could remember what I had to do to make it work properly yeah. and how to make sure it didn't bite me. Yeah. And they do bite. Yeah. Cold when you're on the Yeah. Yeah. When you're on the 10, right on that 10 tens, 11 tens, jeez, yeah. I'll tell you what, they bite. Yeah. yeah. I drove one briefly. Did you, what did you drive? I drove the Primera, uh, Matt Neal's Super Tourer. So, and I, I love that car because it was a, like a prototype silhouette, but it was so far beyond my abilities that I couldn't really get proper heat into the tyres. So, of course, the first two laps, it felt like the most horrible racing car I've ever driven. Yeah. I thought it was atrocious. But I couldn't go back to the pits and say this is an awful racing car because I, I couldn't I couldn't get the car to the point where it was because it had one a couple of maybe won a championship. But you're right. There's a guy in Scotland that owns one of the Leslie or Aiello cars, and he keeps saying to me, he said, "You need to drive this car one day so you know what you missed." Yeah, he said this is, and to be fair, the the Mallet cars we never got the Vectra to work properly. Malik didn't, Triple Eight didn't. It took till 2000 and then it changed quite dramatically so that then the car became a bit more of a consistent race winner. But the Primera, Malik got to work and got it to work really well. And I think if he'd been left with the Vectra, I think he would have got it to work equally as well as he did with the Primera. Yeah. But um, one day I'll drive a Primera or a Mondeo and be able yeah. to compare it to my... Well, I wonder if whether we can. I think we can feel a track test coming. Yeah, I mean, I mean, which, I mean, what was the absolute peak of Super Tours? Was it the was it the Primera? Was it the Ford? Which one would you like to drive? I think in in the era, right after, yeah, I mean, right after the sort of Cavalier disappeared, the Vectra came on board. We had the Laguna, then you had the the Aiello with the Primera, and then latterly you had the Mondeos with Rydell and and uh, menu. So I think each year they evolved and if you took, I mean I've got visions of my 95 Cavalier, it was a really championship winning car, it was a great little thing and my memory was, it was yeah, quite good. But we tuned it by winding the windows down at the back to give it a little bit of aero here and there. 
and for a dry or a wet I mean literally that was how you find that out <laughs> yeah, I, but, but from a dry or a wet <laughs> poor, poor guy sat in the back more to the point you could wind the windows down how yeah. cool is that but it was a little bit more complicated than that but to get the balance right for, for high speed circuits we would actually pull the windows up or down like this but in a wet and a dry setting that car was such that you adjusted very little but there were some cars you had to do massive things to to make them work. And I think each year they evolved. And if I went to the 96 car, it was a big step from 95. But this 97 car I bought back has more carbon fibre on it than the Moon Shuttle. It's a really complex looking bit of kit. Yeah. And it's got sensors on everything. Yeah. Uh, and then when you carry on and you get to the year 2000, yeah. where there were the Mondeos and the last of the Vectras, they were pretty uh, spectacular cars with huge budgets. Reputedly, Ford's budget was 10 million to run three Mondeos. Yeah. It was pretty high money. Yeah. How, how, com how complicated is it to run something like a 97 Vectra nowadays, which I presume is Windows 95 software or something? I mean, <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I mean, I mean how, how difficult is it now getting, getting, getting the computer programs you need to keep the car spick and span? Well, we're, we're fortunate that you don't need a laptop to start it. So you're right, it is Windows 95, and we have an old laptop that's about this thick <laughs> that you can get into the dash, and we can change all the parameters in the dash, but we can't get into the MoTeC uh, management system, which is probably quite good because we'd fiddle with it if we could. <laughs> and since the car seems to work fine at the minute, I don't think we need to fiddle with it. But the problem with these Super Tourers is that we're talking about budgets. Vauxhall's budget was, I can't remember, but it's probably five or so million pounds to run two cars. And we are now trying to run these super tourers on the beer money, yeah. effectively. And if we need, we buy, we buy wings for our car from Serbia, for instance. Um, Matt Neal's been trying to make me wheels for the car for the last three or four years because the magnesium wheels, they were £1,500 each, I think, at the time. Mag ages, so it cracks. So we're now trying to buy wheels. Now, if you need a suspension part, there's sadly no CAD drawings for them. So we have to give the part to somebody, if you've still got a whole piece, mm -hmm. and get them to try and draw it up, and then we have to get it manufactured. Right. So it's, they're not that easy to continue to maintain. But you could still buy one for about a hundred odd thousand pounds today, and what a lot of car for a hundred K. You know, if you've grown up with that super touring era, yeah. and you, you watched it on telly, you played the game, you, the, yeah, you know, the, yeah, the PlayStation yeah. game, yeah. uh, and now you've got a few quid. For 100 grand, you can buy one and go out and have a, a whole heap of fun. Yeah. Well, you don't crash into somebody. Yeah. The car's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talking about modifications and, and windows being wound down uh, in the cars, I've got a question here from Nick Mitchell, um, who's asking whether you can share some close-to-the-mark modifications to the cars that you're glad the scrutineers didn't find. <laughs> um, <I'm> What's <laughs> he implying? Who is, who, who is this guy? What, you mean um, good question, Nick. The V8 engine was quite hard to hide in a Cavalier. <laughs> we'll keep the bonnet shut. Now, the, the only thing, in all of, in all of my career in, in super touring, we never cheated. At Vauxhall, whether it be Dave Cook, Ray Marlock, or Triple Eight, they were a little close to the wire sometimes with the interpretation of some of the rules of what you could and couldn't do. But Toka managed that whole thing really well. You know, you, you, had, you were checked on weight, you were checked on revs, there was monitors, everything was watched, you were checked on ride height. So you kind of had to be somewhere there. And, and Gao wasn't stupid. 
he could see if you got too much of an advantage, we're all running at 975 kilos, 8,500 revs. You know, one car's gone in the distance. Is he cheating? Come here. You know? <laughs> I think there's different formula that, that probably absolutely do cheat and have cheated. I mean, the only thing we ever had with the, the, the Cavaliers was that, you know, the, the the wings you would pull the front wings out slightly to give it a little bit more uh, steering and things like that, and you, you could fail the sort of silhouette test in the in the scrutineering area. So you'd always pull the wings back out again when you got back out the car and things like that. But <laughs> <coughs> there was <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> pull a few wings out, they'd be fine. But no, there was nothing like that. I mean, the, you, you go down to Australia and there's lots of stories there, and in fact. Maybe Andy Rouse could tell you a few stories about maybe nitrous oxide in the turbos in the roll cages and things like that. So, yeah, sure, touring cars lent itself. <laughs> you need to talk to somebody that drove for Tom Walkinshaw in the European touring car days if you want to find out about cheating. Another podcast, I think, because otherwise, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, just before I sort of get, get back to your, your early career, Nick's actually got another question here, which I um, quite like. It's, he's asking what Will Hoy was um, is like as a driver and a person. Um, seems to be universally respected, which is pretty rare for a touring car driver. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Will was was one of my great buddies, and Judy, his his wife, uh, phoned me after he, he died, and she said, "I'd like you to speak at his funeral." And I said, well, there's two things. One, I'm hugely honoured that you asked me. And, and two, I'm, I'm terrified that y you've asked me to do that. Um, he was a great guy. I mean, Will, I, I loved Will. He was, he was good fun. Uh, he, he played golf like most touring car drivers. He, he cheated. You know, you'd, you'd play with Will and you'd get down onto the green and you'd say, how many were you, Will? And he'd go, three. He <laughs> <laughs> was just brilliant. He was just really good. And he and I had great races where we could run side by side, round half, three quarters of a track, and never really worry that one or the other would shove them off. And there aren't that many drivers you could say that about. And he just, even if we were battling for the, the championship at the end of the day, he was a lovely guy. He was just is a sad, sad loss to to the sport. Yeah, great bloke. Now, am I am I right in thinking that I'm just sort of winding the clock back here that you kind of only started in motorsport because of you, you were already a car dealer and you thought it would be quite a good way to to market the business? It wasn't. It, was it as simple as that? Or well, not quite. I mean, I, I my first race, I'm my first competitive event. Um, I, I went for uh, an apprenticeship at the Triumph Motor Company because my father was a Triumph dealer in, in those days. In 1971, so what's that, 40 odd, 46 years ago, and my very first event was the Triumph Automobile Association auto test in the factory grounds at the, the Triumph factory in Coventry. Uh, and that was the first thing I ever did. But the most, and after that, I did a lot of 12 car rallies. So all these nighttime rallies, plot and bash and all that kind of thing. But we jumped through hedges quite a lot, so we really weren't very good at that. And it was seventy, it was seventy-two, I think. That, that, and I, my father agreed right at the beginning. He was a scrutineer, and he dragged me around racetracks and hill climbs and sprints and stuff like that as a kid. So when I pestered them to go racing, he would never buy me a go kart. Absolutely, go karts were no, no. You don't have one of them. So the first car was a mini, 
And the deal was, he would buy it, I had to find the money to run it, and I had to give him back his money at the end of the year. And that was the deal. So Which I thought, task. what a hard old bandit. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it was a good discipline. So the first mini I had, um, we would lower it down, we'd do a sprint or a hill climb, and then the following weekend, we'd raise it up again, put a sump guard on it, and go and do a rally cross with it, or an autocross or something like that. So we used the same car for, for most of the season. And I think my, my third ever event, I, I won. It was an autocross, and I won that. Uh, first ever race I did was at Ingolston, and I started seventh, I think, and came fourth. But Ingolston was a lovely little track in Edinburgh, and what happened when you finished, it was a 10-lap race, eh? and when you finished the 10th lap, you passed the, the, the start line. They then, when the last car passed, uh, they opened the track so that the spectators could get from the inside to the outside or vice versa. I'm battling around so close with the guy who was fifth at the time that we hadn't noticed the flag. So we came hurtling around the final corner, still racing on the 11th lap, only to discover all these people across the track. <laughs> so I very nearly lost my license before my career had started. <laughs> but that Blimey. discipline of buying a car, or my father buying the car, and me giving him back his money, seemed to work, except the next car we bought was a B8 Chevron. And I remember he gave £1,400 for this car, and I did a season of hill climbing with it, and I sold it to a guy called Simon Phillips for two grand, for two thousand pounds. And I thought I was really clever. I'd made a profit on this little Chevron with a two-liter BMW engine in it, fabulous little car, because we were moving on to the next one, which was a B23 Chevron. Sadly, about three or four months ago, Gregor Fiskin, I noticed in in motorsport, had an advert for that very car. And I thought, that's my chassis number. So I dug back through the records, and sure enough, it was. I sold it to Simon Phillips. Phillips sold it to Stilling Moss, I think. Moss sold it to someone in Japan. Uh, and then it went to a guy in Sweden. And it come back. £285,000 was what Gregor was asking for it. And I'd got two grand for it. <laughs> And I'm thinking, well, that wasn't very clever. That's <laughs> <laughs> the so car dealing guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually not such a clever car dealer after all. <laughs> but something like 30 years had passed by or thereabouts. But if you just, if you could afford it and you could just put the cars of that time in a garage and leave them. Like I remember, my, my father was a trader. He, he, I remember coming home one night with a gullwing Mercedes. And he, 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 he probably sold it to somebody for a few hundred quid of profit. And moved it on. But I mean, what's one of them worth today? It's, it's, it's ridiculous money. Yeah. I remember him coming home one night. So he had a Tangerine Porsche 911. And he came home one night. He phoned me up and he said, you need to come and get me. I said, where are you? He says, I'm in the pub. So I said, why? What's wrong with the car? Oh, he says, I've, I've sold it. What do you mean you've sold it? Well, it's actually, I swapped it. He, g he got a few drinks inside him and he swapped this 911 Porsche for the title deeds of a body shop whilst he was in the pub. So I had to go and collect them. So then we ended up with a body shop. I was thinking, what are we doing? And that was typical of my father. He would trade things. And the B23 Chevron we bought off Red Rose Racing, he swapped our Alliance Scimitar and a bag of money for. So that was kind of how we got involved in it. Mm. Uh, and if we just had the common sense to store it, put it in the garage and leave it. But if we were all that clever. Yeah. I was going to say, nobody, nobody in the 1970s... Thing. 
had exactly. that kind of foresight. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, D <coughs> types, for instance, they couldn't give the last of the D types away. And what are they? They're just ten, 10 million. Ten million yeah. quid today. It's just bonkers. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, now we must un uh, answer some more readers' questions. We, we've got quite a few here from Paul Fernley, who uh, many of <laughs> is he a reader? <laughs> who many of you will know, um, who is a, a regular uh, writer for motorsport and former editor as well. Um, he's got lots here, uh, so to, to give everyone else a chance, I'm going to sort of pick a couple. Um, is it true that whenever Jeff Allen drove you on the road, that you always missed the plane? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that that is true. It was quite annoying actually. Jeff, Jeff was a great teammate at Brands Hatch, uh, which was his local track. I would kick his butt. I, I beat him every time. And Knock Hill, my local track, he'd beat me every time. And I have no idea what it was that he just had a finesse about him for Knock Hill, and I maybe had an aggression about me for Brands Hatch. But I remember at one of the races because I I live about an hour and a sensible hour and 20 minutes away. But every, f on the Friday evening, I'd say to Jeff, right, we're going home. So I'd drive like a maniac with him in the car all the way home. I'd pour a bottle of wine in him. I'd drive like a maniac all the way back to Knock Hill. And he beat me in qualifying, right? Saturday night, I'd drive <laughs> like a maniac back home. I'd pour another bottle of wine in him, drive him back to the track the next day, and he beat me in the races. I was like, I'm going to give up with this. It's cost me wine, apart from anything else. <laughs> but you're right. Every time he took me to Gatwick to throw me in a plane, I missed the plane. Always. <laughs> Excellent. So Nice teammate, though. And another one uh, from Paul. A tougher opponent, Menu or Rydell? Uh, it depends what you mean. Uh, tough on track. Rickard was very, very, very fast. But you could get to Rickard. I mean, in, in I think, 95, Rick could qualify right at the front with a Volvo. I would go to him just before the race and say, Rick, I'm going to pass you around the outside of Paddock. Uh, so just watch, you know, don't come too far over. <laughs> or uh, <laughs> Ulton Park, I'd say, right, you know, down into down in, uh, Old Hall or whatever it was. I said, I, I, I might come up the inside this time, okay? <sighs> and he used to hate it. And I could see him. As we'd leave the line, if he was in front, he'd be looking in the mirrors to see where I was. So I could get to his head. But Menu, you can't. Menu was like, nah. He didn't take part in the golf matches. He didn't socialise, where Rickard did. You know, even playing golf, Rickard would be there, just about to, he's on the back swing, and you'd, you'd say, well, Rick, stop, stop, stop. Your legs, are, you, you, your feet, they're too far apart. <laughs> <laughs> he used to hate that stuff. But as an opponent on track, <coughs> I think I'd rather race with Rickard because he was cleaner. Menu had the tendency to do a bit of pushing and shoving. Could, could people get to you? <laughs> and did, did people try? Yeah, lots of times. Uh, maybe it's not a fair way to, uh, to approach it, but I used to love all that mind game stuff. And, and I'm sure there's drivers through the years you know, there's lots of nice drivers that win championships, but there's lots of bad guys out there too. But I really loved that part of it. I liked the whole psychology of it. And I was quite proud of the fact that, okay, I'm, I'm not an athlete, but in a touring car, I could do it. It never really bothered me. I had more capacity to watch peripheral stuff and what was who was where, and I could talk on the radio and all those kind of things. So it didn't slow me down. But I used to love being able to get to inside people like Rickard and, and there was a few others you could really wind so up. We've got, we've got this far into the 
into the podcast without mentioning Frank Sittner. Well, there is actually a question. There is actually a, there is a question here. Can I just ask it's from, from Stevie Mitchell? I don't know whether he's sort of related to Nick Mitchell, but um, he said, uh, "Hi, John. In the 1990 BTCC Birmingham Street Race, Frank Sittner punted you into the barriers on the last lap, taking you both out of the race. You got out of your Cavalier through the window just as Frank was walking towards you, but the cameras changed to a different spot. What happened afterwards?" <laughs> Yeah. Why is it that I always seem to end up in some conflict with a BMW driver? <laughs> in the gravel. Uh, well, but the, to, to go back, to, I'll come back to that in a second. But, but Steve said to me years later, he said, it wasn't Vic that wanted you to drive the BMW. It was BMW. BMW said, employ Cleland. I said, well, Vic never told me that. I thought I was going to drive for Vic. No, no, no. He said, it was BMW said, employ him. I said, well, if he told me that, then I probably would have considered that as an option because working with a manufacturer like BMW with a global motor start program as opposed to Vauxhall with a domestic program might have enticed me a little bit more but we can I come back to that in, in a wee while but yeah Frank Sittner <laughs> we <laughs> I was leading I think I was leading the class uh, or I was in, in a contention anyway and the, the Dunlop tyres were starting to lose a little bit of grip. And I could see Frank catching me, but I thought all I need to do is get round, I think, three corners, and I had that position. And as we came down, it was a left-hand, 90-degree left-hander, and there was a big uh, car park. Behind there, I think, was the fruit market, which was the scrutineering and, and the whole paddock area. And there was this multi-storey car park just on my right. As I turn left, Frank just <laughs> straight in, in the door, hit it that hard that he spun round, so we were virtually nose to nose. The car had hit so hard in my passenger side, the driver's side is up against the barrier, the, the, the tires. I can't open the door on the passenger side because he's bent it. So I have to put the ignition back on and put my electric windows down. Electric windows, you know what's that, boys? <laughs> put the windows down, clamber out onto the tires. And I'm thinking, well, that wasn't really fair. And at that point, Frank is walking towards me, still with his crash helmet on, but he's walking towards me as if to say, listen, you know, I was hoping he was going to say, I'm really sorry. At that point, I jump on the bonnet and dive at Frank. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one hand on his overalls and the other one, I've no idea what I was going to do because he had a full face crash helmet on. So how I was going to get his nose, I've no idea. And the marshals pull us apart and I'm walking away and I'm walking back towards this multi-story car park. And somebody on about the fourth floor shouted, if I'd been you, I'd have punched him. So I thought, yeah, you're right. So I turned <laughs> and I went to go back at him again. By which time he had his crash helmet off. <laughs> so I, I, I was going to get him, but uh, sense got the better of me. And again, he became a, a good friend after that. He, he laughs about it still, I think, today. That's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it was. It was great. If we could bring back the Fight. Birmingham Super Free, <laughs> Super Free yeah, if we could bring back, race. you know, a street track like that for the current grid of thirty-two touring cars. Yeah. Wow. Right, Macau. Good. You know yeah. that that kind of thing. Oh, fabulous. Be, Just yeah, fabulous. Well, maybe now. Well, we do. We actually would, asked. We need GP2 as the. We need GP2 as the. BTCC supporting GP2 around Birmingham. Yeah. Sorry, yes. well, we actually asked Alan Gower about it in December, about having a street race, and he, he cited cost, basically, as the most prohibitive factor. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, any street circuit, 
the cost of putting that on, never mind all the, maybe legislation is a little bit easier today, but nonetheless, you've got c noise, you've got cost, you've got keeping the residents happy, but the revenue that it will bring to the town, city, whatever, will be fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, just before we take some more readers' questions, uh, just want to tell everyone about the new Mercedes-Benz collection uh, this year. Um, if you go to www.mercedes-benz.co.uk forward slash collection 2017, um, there's loads of new, t new for 2017 uh, presents on there, F1 collection, gifts, fashion, and loads more. There's Father's Day around the corner, so if you need any ideas, um, uh, safe bet to go and have a look at um, Mercedes-Benz website. Um, going back to the questions, I got one here from Mr. Tuppence. Um, not maybe that is his real name. It's good, good, good surname good if name. it is. Good name. Um, uh, he wants to talk about you know your Bathurst uh, adventures and how that started. Um, I'd love to know a bit more because obviously it's, it's an absolutely fantastic race. Uh, you did it twelve times. So how did it start, and then, then what did you think of it? Well, uh, Alan Go got me onto it. Um, Gow was Peter Brock's manager before he came to work for Andy Rouse in the UK. And I got on really well with, with Alan. Uh, there's a lot of people don't like him. There's a lot of people think he's, he's um, arrogant. He is, all of those things. But without the arrogance and autocratic way in which he has run the British Touring Car Championship over the last number of years, uh, it wouldn't have been the success that it was. But he and I got on pretty well back back in that stage and I think it was 93 he arranged for me to go and share a car with Peter Brock and at the time Brock was bigger than anybody bigger than Mansell anyone he was just a superstar and I knew all about Brock because I'd watched all of the the TV stuff about Bathurst for years I thought it was just the most fantastic track and just a great place and Gow said to me whatever you do just don't adjust anything. He won't let you fiddle with anything. It's his car. Just get in and drive it. Don't ask for anything because you'll not get it. And I'm thinking, what am I going to here? And the deal in those days was they, they, they paid you a salary to go out and race and business class flights, blah, blah, blah. But then they did, an, I think it was an Easter test um, at Bathurst for the press. And I left Oulton Park to fly to Australia, I went straight to Bathurst and Brock was peddling runabout, taking the press around the, the, the track. And he came in and we were introduced to each other. And he said, right, it's your turn to get in now. Literally, as he said that, it started to rain. So my very first laps of Bathurst were in the wet. And it was scary. I mean, it is a scary place, but it's one that I've, come to respect and it clicks with me and I, I could go back today and get back in a, a competitive car and still be reasonably competitive there but we flew from Bathurst that night down to Phillip Island where they had another car and I remember sitting in the, the passenger, this was a race car with a passenger seat in it and Brock took me around Phillip Island which is the second best track I think I've ever been at in the world and he said, right, this we're, we're down here, and this is six gear, and blah, 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 and up through here, and blah, blah, and looky heights, and all that. And, and he went out, and he did 10, 12 laps, whatever it was, and came in and deemed himself to be happy with the car. And the idea was that I was then to learn the car and start to think about coming back to Bathurst. So um, I went out, 
quite quickly got to grips with it and ended up going quicker than Brock. So uh, they brought me in and they said, hmm, we'll throw a set of new tyres on it and see how you get on now. Oh, right, okay. So I, they threw some new tyres on it and I went back out and went pretty quickly. So that endeared me to Brock into the team. So uh, I flew back home and then flew back out in September, October, whatever it was for that race. And I remember Brock was just a lovely, lovely man. Sadly, no longer with us. But just the sort of guy that would stand and he would talk to the bank manager in the blue suit or he'd talk to the, the animals from the, the, the mountain at Bathurst and the anoraks and the mucky boots and the, and the hats. He, he, was, he had time for everybody. And I think that was a bit of a lesson for me at that stage in my career, that he had created this following globally. Uh, everybody in Australia knew Peter Brock. He was just, he was a character. He was just something special. And he took me to his house for lunch. It was called a Pink Ponderosa, this place. And this was my first visit to Australia, or my second visit, but my first real visit. And we're sitting having lunch, him and his wife, Bev, and the, just the patio doors were here, and there's a kangaroo hopped up to the patio doors. And I went, I've never seen a kangaroo other than in pictures before. So I'm thinking, that's amazing, look, a kangaroo. So he said, shh, shh, shh. And he, he said, we'll see what happens. So he slides the door back, and this kangaroo hopped in to where we were having lunch. And I have a plate here with a, with a roll on it, and this kangaroo hopped up to the side of the table, and helped itself to my role. And I'm going, wow, this is amazing. At which point Brock said, Tilly, put that down, go and lie down. <laughs> this was Brock's pet kangaroo he'd had since it was this size. Like, you banned it. So that's how it's gonna go. But he was just, whatever I wanted on that car, he'd let me adjust, he'd let me fiddle with. And we reached a compromise because Brock was taller than I was. Uh, but I was very conscious of the fact that he was out to win his ninth Bathurst, uh, a record-winning ninth Bathurst, and I was the teammate to him, uh, and that was a challenge. And I have to say, I probably didn't do a great job that year. We broke the, the he broke the tail shaft. He says he didn't, but his first stint. Uh, the, the the story was, you have the headset on. Uh, three or four laps before he was coming in. I said, right, Peter, how's the car? Yeah, car, car's great, car's great, you know. How's the track? Yeah, no, the track's great. Well, a couple of laps I'll be in. So, right, fine, I'll helmet on, all that sort of stuff. I get in the car, new tyres, got a load of fuel out, up mountain straight, and I'm giving it some over the top of the mountain, and I'm on the radio saying, guys, there's a bit of a vibration off this car. It's either a bad tyre, um, or Pete says the car was fine before, um, or it could be a, maybe a wheel bearing or something like that. Right, okay, fine. So I'm chatting away to him over the top of the mountain, down into the elbow. Now we're on Conrod. Now you do on these cars uh, about a, a 290 odd kilometers an hour at the end of Conrod. So I'm plucking gears on this thing. I don't know, 150, 160 miles an hour. Bang! And the prop shaft came through the floor. But I was wired up, as was Brock. There was cameras everywhere in this car. <laughs> and we were wired so that we could talk direct to the Channel 7 television, as well as the pit crew. So 
when I'd been going across the top of the mountain, Channel 7 said, oh, there's obviously a problem in the Cleland Brock car. We'll, uh, we'll go live to the car and see what the problem is, which I didn't know. And as this prop shaft came through the floor, I said, oh, dearie me. <laughs> <laughs> what on earth is that? <laughs> I actually used a four-lettered word beginning with F, and it went out live all over Australia. It managed, I dropped the clutch, killed the engine, and, and it got itself back to the pits. It had broken the rear hub, uh, um, centre drive shaft or something like that on the, on the back axle. I got it back to the pit lane. We were the first pit, so I thought if I block the pit lane, they'll have to push me in, which they did. And I'm, I'm looking down, and there's a huge hole in the floor. And the crew are on the phone saying, John, don't get out of the car, we'll fix it. <laughs> I said, guys, I could climb out through the hole in the floor here. <laughs> no, 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 don't get out, we'll fix it. Okay, fine. So I'm sitting there, I'll wait and see what happens. Next I know is there's a, a message coming in at my crash helmet saying, John, this is the producer at Channel 7. Uh, we'd like to come back and talk to you, only this time, could you not swear? <laughs> I said, when did you talk to me before? <laughs> he said, oh, we didn't, but we did hear you swear. <laughs> I said, oh, dear. So when we go live again, I go, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to welcome to the Cleland Brock car here. We have a bit of a problem, but first I'd like to apologise for using a, a quaint Gaelic word in Scotland <laughs> when things ain't going too well. <laughs> and since that day, to this day, I've never been able to buy a drink in Australia. The one thing the Australians love is sport and swearing. So every pub I go into in Australia... They buy me a drink now because I'm the Scotsman that swore on live television. <laughs> but it is the Brilliant. most fantastic track. It's one where you drive out the pitch, you go up Mountain Street, and you just smile. You just smile. Can I, can I ask about the versatility you, you show as a driver? Most people know you for front-wheel drive of all sorts, but... You know, you, you, you mastered rear-wheel drive stuff as well. And I, I remember watching you in the Thunder Saloon Brands, 84, yeah, 83, sorry, 84. So I was like nine, ten years old. And, and I used to beg my dad to take me to Brands to watch the Thunder Saloons. Um, where does that versatility come from? You know, you started in a Mini, you go to a Chevron, you have this insane Thunder Saloon, then a front-wheel drive car, the Astra. Uh, it, it didn't <laughs> seem to matter where the thing drove from. I mean, I actually, in all of my touring car career, I drove front-wheel drive cars. Yeah, yeah. And that wasn't because I couldn't have gone somewhere else, and I'm sure we could cover that later, but I, I, I actually don't like front-wheel drive. <laughs> <laughs> but I got paid to drive front-wheel drive touring cars for a great number of years. Yeah. But I loved big, hairy, rear-wheel drive, six, 700 horsepower things. Yeah. And to drive a V8 supercar around somewhere like Bathurst, is just the best. And to do it on qualifying tires, you know, or brand new brand new rubber on a hot lap, oh, it's just something else. And it is a track that every driver that uh, there was very few Brits had gone out there to that point, but there have been quite a number of Brits have gone out subsequently. Yes, yes. And every one of them comes back saying, oh, great place. Absolutely great place. Yeah. It is just down the dipper. You do know you don't really realise the the scale of the, the rise and fall of the track until you actually walk around it. As a, in a car, yeah, you do, but when you walk around it or you try to walk it backwards and up, yeah. 
up the corkscrew. <laughs> yeah. Sounds I, like you'd like to do it again. Oh, I'd love to. Absolutely loved it. I mean, I've been, I've been upside down there. I've yeah, no, but not just upside down. Upside down, the right way up. Upside down, the right way up. <laughs> yeah. That yeah, was quite it, a big one. But it, it, I came second in 2001, I think it was, with Brad Jones. We started 21st on the grid. And in the morning, uh, he went out. We'd done all, well. We, listen, the only thing we didn't change overnight was the wiper blades, because we were so far back. It was just like let's change everything. Because what have we got to lose? And everything went great, apart from the radio didn't work. So a, a driver changed to strap a radio, in because everything had broken inside the car. So we had to strap a radio inside our overalls and then plug it in manually somewhere further down the track. But it worked, and we fought through, I think it even had hailstones that day. It rained, it was dry. And after six and a half hours of racing, Brad and I finished 1.1 seconds or something behind Mark Scaife in the works holding. And to stand on that podium at Bathurst was just someone else. And the deal, we were standing, I was standing in the pits watching the last hour of it, and somebody said to me, you guys could actually end up on the podium here. I said, yeah, yeah, we, we could. And it was somebody from Gatorade, I think, said, if you could get a bottle of Gatorade out on that podium, I'll give you 5,000 US uh, Australian dollars. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking to a Scotsman here. <laughs> now, let's be clear on this. I've only got to get that bottle out there and be seen. Uh-huh. How hard can that be? What I didn't know was that they frisked you. So I managed to stash this bottle of Gatorade in such a fashion that they didn't find it. <laughs> and as I went out onto the, the podium and had my bottle of Gatorade out there giving it this. And within that, my bottle of Gatorade had got taken off me. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody'd sussed what I was up to. But I got my 5,000 bucks, <laughs> which was okay. <laughs> Who's the, the, the Australian, I mean, quite a lot of the Australian guys who've be, become big names in V8s, guys like Mark Scaife, mm. I mean, they came over to Europe, tried a bit of racing, but didn't, couldn't raise the budget for it, and went back home again. I mean, who were the guys there that you really rated? I think in the Scaife days, I shared the car with Scaife a number of years later, and that was just when I think Lounsey was coming up through it, but... Listen, there's, that racing is fantastic. And, you know, you've got guys like Winkup, uh, Winterbottom, uh, Mark Scaife himself, you've got Tander. Now you've got the young guys coming up through there. Scotty Pye, and all, all the young lads. And there is a fantastic pool of talent over there. And there wasn't, when I first started going out there, such a, a known quantity of good drivers. That's why they took a lot of the Europeans out and put them in as the second driver in the, in the, the V8 race at, at Bathurst, which is good because that got me a chance to go out there and then I went and did another 12 or 13 of them. But now there is such a pool of talent in Australia. I think it, it's great racing. For me, uh, any one of two dozen people could win a race there. And Tim Schenken, the clerk of the course, is hard and brutal with the penalties that he will dish out because they have a live feed so you can see exactly that you punt somebody. I mean, I punted somebody out of the way at Bathurst one year that guy was just getting in my way. And within two laps, it was, you've got a drive-through. So there's no messing about. You foul up, you take the penalty, you take the pain, that's it. But I think there's some great guys out there. Winkup has done a fabulous job. 
albeit in the best car, and now you've got, um, what do you call him, uh, Fabian Coulter, mm. you got, it's, it's got to be a serious championship, or it's got to be regarded as a serious championship when you have people like Roger Penske looking at it. I think that kind of sums it up. There, there were just a couple of things you mentioned, um, talking about Bathurst, so I just wanted to pick you up on. Uh, you said it, Philip Island, the second best track. What's the best track? Bathurst. Bathurst, right, okay. Just wanted to clear that out. We're not paying attention. I thought for a second it was going to be Knock Hill. Um, <laughs> you know, you know the funny thing? Uh, let me tell you about Knock Hill. Knock Hill were sponsors of mine. They had Knock Hill Racing Circuit on my helmet in all of the time, from the 92, when they first had the first two-in-car race there, all the way through to I retired. And I had this on there, and they were great sponsors, lovely people. I never mastered the track. I won one race there. Oh, honestly, I, I've got no chance there. For some reason, it just doesn't suit my style of driving. Um, the, the other one I wanted to ask was, would you, would you trade one of your championships, BTCC championships, for a win at Bathurst? Yeah, the 92. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> I, 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 th I think to come second there uh, with a effectively private entry which was what brad jones was it was a one car team uh with he and i and to, to come second there that close 1.1 seconds that much we were literally a car's length behind him after a thousand kilometers and six and a half hours of torrid racing as far as i was concerned i'd won bathurst you know it was that good for me uh, and it sort of put me on a map from the australian point of view because I got offered drives from various different people for, for a number of years after that, yeah. uh, which, which helped. And, yeah. it, and it was good. And it allowed me to go on holiday with my wife on the Barrier Reef as well, which was really nice. <laughs> Quids in. Um, so I, we are sort of slowly running out of time. We've got time for, for a few more questions. Um, there's one here from Nick Hipkin uh, asking whether you regret not staying for, on for the last season of Super Touring in 2000. Uh, Vauxhall seems to be a lot stronger that season. He surely would have had a chance of winning a race or two. Yeah, I, I think... I'd made my mind up. There were lots of things. My father had passed away. It was a matter of um, I had to uh, put my head back on the business because all the time I raced professionally uh, for touring cars, I had a day job. I would leave Thruxton uh, at 6 o'clock, whatever it was, on Sunday evening. I'd be back in my office at back of 8 o'clock the next morning. And today I have a business that I, I run. Uh, unlike a lot of the race drivers that, went through that professional era, uh, they really don't have businesses to fall back on. Very few of them have. So for me, it was about the day job as much as it was about the professional thing. And I mean, I'd have my team at the dealership on the phone saying, what's this worth or what's that worth? And I said, well, that's worth that and worth this, but you can't talk to me for the next hour because I'm going to go and race. And it was kind of like that. Do I regret that? Mm, probably in some ways because there was opportunities to go and do other things. There was opportunity to go and race in the DTM, which I, I never took up. I, I, I did the um, race of champions with uh, Keke Rosberg and uh, a few people like that. Uh, Yannick Dalmas was in the car with Rosberg and he shunted the car. And I was in with Manuel Reuter, I think. And I, I sat around the table with uh, Keke at night and everybody else had gone to bed. And he said, better have another glass of wine. And he just lit up another big cigar. So we sat and talked. And it was just amazing sitting and talking to a guy like Rosberg for a good hour and a bit about things. And I said, well, listen, I'll step down. You can, you can have the seat 
and, and the one I'm driving, and he said, not bloody likely. He says, I'm going to have another cigar and another glass of wine. <laughs> and he didn't even want to drive it. <laughs> so I had the opportunity to go and do DTM. But I had a family. I've got four, four kids. My wife really... She still wouldn't be my wife, I think, if, if I'd gone and done that. That yeah. would have been the problem. It, it is... It is Funny though that you know you're talking about t- Sunday night finishing a sex, going back to the office. I mean, because in a way you're still doing that 20 years later, because you're you know you're racing the Super Touring again, and you're still you know you've still got the the, the dealership, and um, no, not too much has changed in, in a good way, hasn't it? No, it, it hasn't. It's uh, in some respects. I, I mean, I love it. I mean, I I do what I do because I, I I really enjoy it, and I think there's only one year since 1971 that I haven't raced a car. I think that was 77 or something like that. Whether it was rallying or whether it was racing or w- whatever. I, I love it. It's it's just part, it's been part of my life. I've been lucky enough to be paid to do a job that I would otherwise have done for free, mm. you know. And and when when you race and you get paid to race cars, you know you really are in a privileged position. And in 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 the height of super touring, there were more drivers being paid to drive super touring than Formula One drivers being paid. Uh, so you know it was the era at the time when everybody wanted to be in it. Everybody wanted to be part of it. It was the place to be seen. It was great. F- forgive me if you have raced at Le Mans. No, I am Right. Would you have liked to race at Le Mans? Did you have any offers to race at Le Mans? I, it was something that I, I never really got my head around. I, I had no desire to really get into sports cars. I came to the sport really too late. Uh, I mean, I w- when I won the first championship, I think I was already 38 or something like that. So it was getting on too, too late in the day. Um, would I like to have, I'd like to have done European Touring Car Championship back in the days when the Bastos Rovers and yes. Walkinshaw and, and, and Soper went on to do that. That's the bit I regret, probably not getting the chance to go and race at places like Bruno and some of the fabulous tracks around, around Europe. But despite having raced the Chevron or Hill Climb to Chevron B23 early on, did that still didn't give you the kind of sports car... I wasn't Both. serious about being a driver then. I, I I did it because it was fun. I did it because it was just something to do at weekends. It, it wasn't a career. I didn't get up one morning and think, I want to be a, a race driver or I want to be a touring car driver more so. Uh, but it was only when I got to about sort of mid-80s and, and the Carlton Thunder Saloons and stuff like that were going quite well. And then all of a sudden the British touring cars looked like it was going to be something big. It was only then, in the, about the early '90s, I started to think, hmm, "Hang on, guys, this could be, this could be something pretty special." So, no, I, I never ever set out to think. As I said before, I, I never had a go kart, so I didn't start at six or seven in a kart. And I think today, if you don't start at that age, you don't really reach Formula One any longer, do you? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a different different world now. I'd like to have done NASCAR. I'd love to have done NASCAR. Really? I went out with Autosport a number of years ago and I did an article at Charlotte where I met Richard Petty and I drove one of his cars at Charlotte. And it's the only car I've ever driven that looks as though it's had a shunt before I got in it. <laughs> <laughs> it was lying and like this. <laughs> and it was, it was an amazing thing to drive. It was just, you, you clamber in through the window and it was in the days before they had proper seats. It was, it was the days before, sadly, Dale Earnhardt, who was again another hero of mine. I met him when I went to Charlotte for this event, and uh, he was an intimidating man. He was a scary man. Uh, never mind being a competitor, but even just to meet him was quite scary. But driving this thing around there was 
I thought, yeah, I could do this. I could really get into this. And I quite like that whole muscle bound, you know, push and shove and, you know. No, I'd, I'm going to squeeze in one more question from Paul Fernley because I'm, I'm interested in the answer on this one. Uh, it's British Touring Car Championship Media Day passenger rides. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did you try a lot harder whenever the Autosport or Motoring News reporter clamoured in? Yeah, if his name was Paul, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was a bit of a game to see who we could scare the best, the most. <laughs> no, I, every single lap I've ever done in a race car has always been either nine or ten tenths. I, I've never, ever got in a car and thought, I'll pedal run at seven tenths or whatever. If it's a test day, uh, I would go as fast as possible, even down the pit lane to the line where you're on the limiter or whatever, to make sure that every lap was the same. Because coming back in, the engineers wanted data on tyres. So if you cross the line and you dawdle around the last lap, They've got no data on the tyres at that point. So it was a bit of a habit, having spent hours, days and days and days tyre testing and things like that and testing these cars everywhere throughout Europe. Every lap was every lap was an experience. Every lap was 10 tenths. It was the only way to get better. It's like everyone else. The more you do something, the better you get at it. So it was, it was fabulous. Well, we, we really must end there, but John, thank you so much for coming coming on in and being on 10 tenths form. Um, it's been an absolutely fantastic hour. Thank you so much. Um, thank pleasure. you to Simon. Thank you, Nick. Um, thank you to Alan as well. As always, we'll be back next month with another motorsport podcast in association with Mercedes-Benz. Thanks so much, and see you all then. Bye-bye for now. What do you think of when someone says the word used, old-fashioned, out of tune, a bit scratched, Something past its best. Chances are you're not thinking of a Mercedes-Benz. And certainly not one of the latest models. Think Mercedes-Benz approved used. Suddenly, there's a lot more meaning to that little word. Visit your local retailer to find your used car today, and you'll see what I mean. Mercedes-Benz approved used. Used, but not what you're used to.